Crashing Cove. You guys are you guys are so great. Thank you so much. Um, do it again. Hey, I forgot to tell you earlier. There's uh, connect cards there in your pew. If you're uh, sharing your your time with us for the first time this Sunday, please fill that out and uh, get that to somebody. You were supposed to put that in an offering plate, but I forgot to tell you, so you probably didn't. But uh, they're right there. Uh, if you have your Bible, you can turn to the, the book of Genesis chapter 16. Uh, we have those in the pew there for you. Genesis is right there in the middle of your Bible. And uh, I'm just kidding, that's a mean joke. That's a mean joke. Genesis is the, the first one. Drive to the table of contents. Turn to the uh, book of Genesis chapter 16. Um, so sometimes your suffering is invisible. Isn't it? Sometimes the thing that you're going through, it's like you really can't share it out loud. Maybe it's just something that's too intimate. Maybe it's, it's, it just feels too embarrassing, too humiliating to share. Or, or maybe the thing that you're really going through is just really tied up in someone else's story and you don't feel like you have a right or privilege to share what they're going through, but the truth is that it's really weighing you down. Last week I told you the story of the day our daughter was born, and today I want to tell you that a few years later, after uh, Charlie was born, Renella got pregnant again, uh, but this one ended up in a miscarriage. We were traveling in Tennessee for the holidays, and uh, after a few days of really elevated uh, bad signs and things that were making us really concerned and worried, we went to the emergency room, and this tired physician just kind of looked Renella up and down and confirmed that she had had a miscarriage. And we just were so empty-handed and broken-hearted after that experience. It was really, really difficult. Well, after a little while, we, we were so hurt and, and so heartbroken from that experience, but we really, really, really wanted to have another baby. And so we decided to, you know, try again and and try to have another baby. And um, not long into that pregnancy, that one also turned into a miscarriage. And uh, what happened was, uh, you know, it happened right in between Sunday school and worship. And so uh, right before I started leading a worship service, I found this out. And it was That was a tough day of worship for me, just sitting there knowing what was happening. And then, not long after that, um, I got a call from a bill collector from the hospital. And this lady was wanting to collect all the money that we owed this hospital, the thousands of dollars, for our emergency room visit. And we, at the time, we had almost nothing. I mean, we had bought this house. We, we hadn't even finished furnishing our house because we couldn't afford furniture. So we had very little, and she just kept pressing me like, well, can you do this much? Can you? And I just didn't have the emotional wherewithal to say, no, get lost, you know. And so I consented to, to giving them way more money than I possi- we possibly could have afforded. And so... I sat at my desk in my office and it was like we were bereft of a baby 
bereft of maybe even thinking about the possibility of having a baby. And now everything had been taken from us as well. Sometimes your suffering is invisible, isn't it? Nobody sees a miscarriage unless you tell them. Nobody sees how few little pennies are left in your penny bank unless you, for some reason, tell them. Miscarriage, infertility, childlessness, those are good examples of invisible suffering, of pain that is just locked away down into the depths underneath the surface of things where people do not see. Someone gets pregnant and there's so much emotional uh, excitement tied up in that, so much anxiety, so much worry, so much hope, so much excitement, and then something happens and it's taken away. But of course, there's a lot of ways you can have invisible suffering in your family or in your life, isn't there? Right? You have a difficult childhood, or maybe you're going through a difficult season in your marriage. Maybe there was just that thing that happened to you when you were young, or maybe right now you have a scary diagnosis, or you're waiting for lab results to come back. So my question for you this morning is this, what is the invisible suffering in your life, or in your family. This morning I want to share this story with you from Genesis about two women carrying a lot of invisible suffering. And how the way they chose to see God and worship God and relate to God had a profound way of shaping how they got through that season. So this begins in Genesis chapter 16, uh, verse 1, and this is what it says. Now Sarah, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. But when she had an, but she had an Egyptian maidservant named Hagar. So she said to Abram, The Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my maidservant. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarah said. So after Abram had been living in Canaan ten years, Sarah, his wife, took her Egyptian maidservant Hagar and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar and she conceived. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarah said to Abram, You are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I put my servant in your arms, and now that she knows she is pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Your servant is in your hands, Abram said. Do with her whatever you think is best. Where am I on the page? I lost it. The Bible is so hard to read. There's all these crazy words. Um, Then Sarah mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that is beside the road to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarah, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress Sarah, she answered. Then the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will so increase your descendants, they will be too numerous to count. 
The angel of the Lord also said to her, You are now a child and you will have a son. You shall name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard of your misery. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him. He will live in hostility toward his brothers. She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. Thanks be to God for that very good word. Amen. So I just want to say this one thing about Genesis before I say anything else, and that is this. I believe there are no mistakes in Genesis. All right? So every single word in Genesis is there with genius in intentionality. It's, it's there on purpose. And every single word that is not there in the text is also not there for a reason. So I want to talk about this story. I want to talk about this childless Sarah first. All right? God has already promised Abram that He's going to bless him with a son. It's a done deal. And Sarah has been a character in the Genesis story now for four chapters, okay? You meet her in chapter 12, but this is the first time she speaks in the, in the story, all right? This is the first time she ever says anything. And the very first sentence that comes out of the mouth of Sarah is this, the Lord has kept me from having children. That's the first thing she ever says. And she's doing theology here, isn't she? She's describing the character and the behavior of God. All right? And what's really interesting about this is that you could make a case that she's making this up because the Bible actually doesn't say that. Okay? The, the, the story of Genesis never actually says that the Lord kept her from having children. Just not actually there on the actual page of the actual Bible. And like I said, there are no mistakes in Genesis. So the first mistake that Sarah makes is this. Sarah assumes God is controlling and causing her suffering. Again, the Bible doesn't make that claim. She does. Now hold on to that for a second and look at what Sarah does. She's trapped in this belief that God is kind of sadistically kind of afflicting her womb, okay? And ironically, Sarah then tries to take control of the situation herself, okay? Sarah gives permission to her husband to use her slave to bear children for the family, since she cannot. And this is just an incredibly painful thing for a woman to do, for all the reasons that you can imagine, and even more in the hoops of this particular culture. And Sarah demonstrates no trust in God and in God's promises. She has no faith in God to provide her with a child. So she takes control into her own hands and she finds herself in a place where she's asking her husband to sleep with another woman. In all of the emotional pain and just awfulness of what this entails, it immediately spills out the second that Hagar gets pregnant. Shocker, right? I mean, look at what she says. Look at just the, the, the pain that just drenches these words from Sarah. She began to despise her mistress. Then Sarah said to Abram, You are responsible. 
for the wrong I am suffering. I put my servant in your arms, and now that she knows that she's pregnant, she despises me. So, there are two things that the author of Genesis, I think, who's very intentional about every word on every page, wants you to feel about Sarah right now. Okay? Number one, Sarah is not your model of faithfulness. At least not right now. And number two, Sarah has a complicated relationship with control. Even though the Bible doesn't say God is controlling her pregnancy or lack thereof, Sarah assumes that God is the one pulling the strings and doing this to her. And in this really, really painful experience that she's having, the only thing that Sarah says about God, the only thing she says about God, is that God is controlling and causing her infertility. And then she immediately turns around and tries to take control of the situation herself. She controls this slave of her. She tries to control her destiny. Everything with this lady is about control. All right? So now let's talk about Hagar. All right? So if you go to verse 6, what does it say? It says, Hagar, uh, Sarah mistreats Hagar. All right? She oppresses her, she afflicts her, she insults her. It's a broad word. It can mean many things. But this is where the story gets really good. Hagar runs away. Hagar is not the kind of person who just takes it. Over the course of history, there have been many people who have thought that servants and slaves and women should just take whatever abuse is handed to them from the authority in their lives. And Hagar is not one of those people. She ain't going to put up with it. And this is really interesting. Running away from a master who has trafficked her and abused her is the only thing that Hagar does before God's messenger comes to speak a word of incredible, profound grace over her. Okay? There's no part in this, you know, she hasn't done some awesome like repentance act, right? She hasn't made some kind of sacrifice to God. She hasn't prayed first. God just comes and speaks to her while she is running away. And he gives her son the name Ishmael, which means God hears. Hagar's pain has been silent and invisible. Abram does not hear her pain. Sarah does not hear her pain. But God hears her pain. He's listening to her suffering. And God calls it like He sees it. If this pregnant woman tries to run away to Egypt through the desert all alone, she is not going to make it. She's not going to survive that journey. And so he says, look, I've got big plans for you, and I've got big plans for your son. Best case scenario, you've got to go back to this wacky family of yours. And at that point, Hagar speaks up like Sarah. She does her own theology. Hagar describes the character of God and His behavior. And listen, the author of Genesis is, this is on purpose. The author of Genesis 
wants you to juxtapose what Hagar has to say about God with what Sarah has to say about God. These two women who suffer in the invisible silences of childlessness and abuse and oppression, what do they believe about God and how does it shape their hearts? So what does Hagar say about God? Look in verse 13. You are El Roy, the God who sees me. And did you notice way back in verse 7, where does the angel of the Lord find Hagar? Okay, where does Hagar do this theology and give Yahweh the name, you are the God who sees me? Ah, it's near a well in the desert. And as it turns out, Genesis is much more fun to read in Hebrew than it is in English. Because the Hebrew word there for well, ayin, is also the word for I. God comes to Hagar at the well, at the eye in the desert. And He says, I see your pain. I see what you're going through. And in case you have any lingering doubts that Genesis wants you to see Hagar as kind of the, the, the true protagonist, the true hero in this complicated family, Abram, Sarah, Hagar. Okay? I want you to remember this. Hagar says, I have now seen Elroy, the one who sees me. And nobody in the Bible gets to do that. Nobody gets to see God and live. People have visions of God. There's a little bit of a discrepancy there. But nobody gets to see God face to face and live. Abraham doesn't get to see God. King David doesn't get to see God. Moses doesn't get to see God face to face and live to tell the tale. But Hagar... She sees the one true living God and she lives to tell the tale. And Genesis isn't done. That's just the beginning. Hagar is the only person in the entire Bible to personally name God. Nobody else gets to do that. Abraham doesn't get to give God a name. Uh, King David doesn't get to give uh, God a name. Uh, Moses doesn't get to do that. No one in the entire Bible gets to do that except for Hagar. Two women who suffer and carry invisible pain. They both have all ten fingers and all ten toes and live in this wealthy family where things look nice. And one of them chooses to worship and focus on this God who controls and causes suffering. And one of them chooses to worship the God who sees you. One of them sees the God who sees you, who just bears witness to what's really going on underneath the surface of things. Genesis wants you to see God's heart for the Hagars of this world. Genesis wants you to be like Hagar in your relationship with God. In the 1200s, one of the most important theologians of Christian history, a guy named Thomas Aquinas, he says this about theology. You can put this on the screen. The symbol of God functions, alright? So everyone, we're going to say this together and then I'll explain what it means. The symbol of God functions. Alright? So let me say this in a different way. The way you see God impacts your life. Alright? Put it another way, you become more and more like the God that you worship. 
God is the highest, noblest, purest, most awesome person or thing in the entire universe. So you and I, in the culture that we create, naturally reflects more and more and more whatever God it is that we are worshiping. So, I'll give you an example. If you worship a God who is just this really angry tyrant, and every time you mess up, He hurls a lightning bolt, or gives you a paper cut, or a mosquito bite, or whatever it is, if that's the kind of God you worship, more and more you are going to reflect that. You are going to either become the angry tyrant, or you will become passive in the face of those who are angry tyrants and desire to rule over others. On the other hand, if you worship a God who is like all sunshine and rainbows, if you worship a God who's like, it's all, it's all good, bro, just like whatever you want, there's no judgment. You know, like in the face of some, I, you know, I don't know, like, like genocide, you know. That's going to have a profound effect on the way you show up as a parent or how you manage a classroom, or how you manage employees, and you're going to give a free pass to a lot of bad characters and a lot of bad behavior in this world. Because the symbol of God functions. The way you see God impacts your life, and you become more and more like the God that you worship. And Genesis 16 is a perfect example of this. You have two women who are carrying invisible, enormous invisible suffering in their hearts. And both of these women are theologians who choose to worship God in very different ways. Sarah worships the God who controls, and Hagar worships the God who sees her in her pain. And what is the function of that? What is the impact of that in their life? Well, Genesis wants you to see that Sarah is a disaster She's a mess. She's an authoritarian, a micromanager. She has to be in control. And Genesis wants you to look at Hagar and be inspired by her will to survive and thrive and care for her son. She is absolutely an oppressed, abused, trafficked woman. But she has incredible trust and intimacy with God. Hagar is the one who gets to see God face to face and live to tell about it. Hagar is the one, the only one in the entire Bible who gets to personally name God. Hagar worships the God who sees her in her pain. And that is exactly the thing that carries her through the valley in the storm of enormous suffering. It is her theology. It's the shape of her intimacy with the living God because the symbol of God functions. The way you see God impacts your life. And so the story is inviting you today to worship El Roy, the God who sees you. Look at the God who sees you in all of your pain, all of your struggle, all the things that you're carrying on the inside that nobody else sees. Have that kind of relationship with God. And when the people around you are struck by tragedy and struggle and they wander in their own deserts, don't be a Sarah and, and kind of, 
God is doing this to you. That messes with people's minds. Take it from the guy who sat in a lot of hospital rooms and funerals. You start telling people that God is doing this to them because God has some kind of secret plan. It's not helpful. They end up looking more like Sarah. Less like Hagar. So I want you to really dig deep today and be self-reflective. What pain in your story are you still hiding? What are you kind of ignoring, kicking over into the corner of your heart? Okay, What are you hiding from God and from the good people that God's placed in your life? Because as long as you are still hiding the pain in your heart and the pain in your story, you aren't really and truly worshiping the God El Roy, the God who sees you. You don't have intimacy with that God. Because until Hagar met that God, she was a pregnant woman doomed to die on the desert road to Egypt. But the good news of the story is that when you... Um, Trust that God, okay? When you worship that God, kind of God who, who, who bears witness to your pain, whatever's going on deep underneath the surface in your heart, you become resilient like Hagar. You have your makeup on, you have your good career, you have all the pieces lined up for your religious life. You can, that's, that's old news, you can go to the blank. But all of that, all these things, all these ways that you just kind of pull all these things together and get all your ducks in a row, it's just the Sarah in your heart trying to maintain control. You still have to turn your face to Elroy, the God who sees you. When Ronella and I lost our unborn babies, we had good people of faith in our lives that carried us and loved us. And we had to contend with the Sarah and the Hagars in our hearts. Okay, We had to make a choice if we were going to torture ourselves, trying to decide, what is God trying to teach me right now? What is God? Why is God doing this? Why is God doing this? Or instead, if we were going to rest and find strength in the warm embrace of El Roy, the God who saw us in our pain and was with us, all the way through it. If we were going to lean on the arms of the good people God had put in our lives to see us in our pain and, and be with us. So there are two things I think this story is inviting you to do today. Right, starting right now. Okay, This is what I think God is challenging you to do today. Number one is this. Trust the God who sees to see you in your pain. Okay? When was the last time you said out loud in prayer those really hard things? Out loud in prayer. The truth of what's going on underneath the surface of things. Give that to God in prayer and in worship. Trust the God who sees with all of your mess and all your pain inside. Here's the second thing. Very similar. Trust the good people that God has placed in your life to see your pain. I'm not talking about religious people. I'm not talking about Sarah people. I'm talking about Elroy people. 
I'm talking about the people who have taken off their armor and laid down their shield and they've done the work to let God see what's going on. They've done the work to let God's people see what they're going through and to trust them with it. Maybe it's a pastor. Maybe it's a counselor. Maybe it's a good Elroy kind of friend. That's where the true healing place takes place. That is where you are going to find the strength and resilience to get through your own desert journey like Hagar. Let's go to a time of prayer together, my friends. Loving and generous and good God, God who sees us in our pain. Lord, we open up ourselves to You. We make a choice to inch toward trust. To trust You, Lord, that You are safe and gentle to receive us even when we don't have it all figured out. To wrap us up whatever discombobulated mess it is on the inside of us. And to, to trust that You are putting good people in our life that, that we can find and step toward and share our hearts with. That is the Elroy way. That is the, the Hagar path. Lord, we draw closer to You, the God who sees us in our pain, and we love You. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.